Hello and welcome to the Researcher Podcast, your regular look at the research that's making waves in the scientific community and the people behind it. My name is Joe Fenton and I will be your host today. So before I introduce this week's guest, I'd really like to hear your feedback on this podcast series. So don't forget to leave us a review wherever you may be listening. And if not, you can always drop me an email at joseph.fenton at researcher-app.com. Okay, so this week I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Peter Crockford from Princeton University. Peter is the author of Triple Oxygen Isotope Evidence for Limited Mid-Proteozoic Primary Productivity. Today we'll be finding a bit more about both this paper and the person behind it. So Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Okay, so before we get into your paper, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic career so far? Sure. Um, I'm from the west coast of Canada on Vancouver Island. Uh, And then I stayed on the island to do my master's and undergraduate at the University of Victoria. And then after a few years of working in mineral exploration in the Canadian Arctic, I decided to start a PhD at McGill University in 2013. And then I finished my PhD in 2017 and began a postdoc uh, that I'm doing now. And your paper, let's discuss that. So what is it about? Absolutely. So uh, today on Earth, uh, plants, microorganisms uh, that form the base of the food chain provide a function for all the rest for the rest of the biosphere that really sucks carbon out of the atmosphere and forms it into complex molecules that the rest of the biosphere can ingest. And if it wasn't for these what we call primary producers, there would really be no other types of life on the planet. And what this paper was investigating was what kind of planet did primary producers that existed over uh, Earth's middle history from about 2 billion years ago to about 1 billion years ago, what kind of planet did they shape? So at this time... The world was dominated by just microorganisms, no animals, no trees. And what we did was provide the first constraints on exactly how productive they were, how quickly they were sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and then putting oxygen into the atmosphere. Okay, and so this paper, you chose Canada, and obviously there is a reason behind that. And I'm just wondering what that actually is. Yeah, so the signals that we were uh, seeking to find and later found uh, were deposited in a unique environment. So this was sampled from a lake that was about one and a half billion years old that evaporated and was able to capture all of the other elements in the water like salts. So we were measuring sulfates. And so it's very rare to have these deposits preserved in the geologic record. And so for my next question, and as ridiculous as it may sound, I'm just curious to know how can you tell just how old a lake actually is? So this relies on a combination of other analytical techniques that have previously uh, dated this basin to approximately one and a half billion years old. Uh, so it's really with that foundation that then we can choose what formations to seek out to, uh, to analyze. And so Monte Carlo, for me, obviously, that represents the area and principality of Monaco. But in this study, it's a sampling method. So what actually is this sampling method? What does it consist of? Yeah, so basically, 
the approach we took was there's a lot of parameters we had to think about that could influence our signal of interest that we had discovered in these old lake deposits. And so what we did is we pooled together previous estimates of atmospheric CO2, atmospheric oxygen, uh, the diversity and values that we measured within this old lake deposit. And we basically sample randomly uh, of these different variables and it comes up with a result. And when we do this about 10,000 times, it comes up with a distribution of likely results from these uh, input parameters. And so then we can look at this distribution and say, what are the most likely results from this? And so in our study, for example, what we found was when we sampled over a wide range of parameters, and we do this 10,000 times, almost all solutions suggested a much less productive biosphere about one and a half billion years ago than the present. So what this would mean is that at 1.5 billion years ago, there was much less carbon being sucked out of the atmosphere and much less oxygen being excreted back into the atmosphere than the present day. You say that your sampling is repeated 10,000 times. And I'm just wondering why the number is 10,000, you know, not anything more or anything less is this um the optimum number of times that you should repeat the sampling process or is it completely random just a large number to make sure that we're sampling enough times to get a representative distribution of our results um we could have done it a hundred thousand times but we sort of found a middle ground between computing time and uh, and where we would keep generating the same result. Okay, now I just want to ask you just how important are computing techniques in your field and how has this evolved over time? Uh, so I would say that it's becoming much more vital progressively year by year. I think if you were able to dig up undergraduate curriculums from uh, universities and their geoscience departments from 20 years ago, I think it would be a lot harder to find, maybe much harder to find uh, a wide range of courses that are applying different mathematical methods and statistical techniques in the geosciences, whereas now it's becoming standard in just about every geoscience department across the earth. And part of this is becoming uh, more relevant because there's just more data out there to data to analyze, as well as uh, people keep uncovering more processes and factors that we need to think about when we uh, measure old rocks in the sedimentary record and generate uh, uh, pictures of what the earth used to look like. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and so I want to take this back to the paper and possibly the literature that was available to you before you started this piece. So what evidence was available to you for fluctuating oxygen levels in the past? Yeah, so the earliest evidence was stuff that uh, you could just see by the human eye. So, for example, rocks older than about 2.5 billion years um, have things like rounded rounded minerals that in an oxygenated atmosphere would simply weather away. So when you see sands and things and these grains that were being transported in rivers, they just couldn't exist on a modern-like environment. Uh, another feature is, for example, all of a sudden in the geologic record, you get these things called red beds. So you have oxidized iron minerals that are uh, coming in that you can see visually very easily. And then 
beyond that, people have been making a wide uh, array of different geochemical measurements, uh, and these typically involve different isotopic systems uh, that have been very powerful in uncovering some of this oxygenation history. Um, and so what this, when we pool all of these different proxies and tools together, this emerging picture comes uh, to light where we seem to have before about two and a half billion years ago, barely any oxygen in the atmosphere. And then suddenly we have a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere, but it's not quite as high as the modern environment. And then it's not until about 500 or 450 million years ago that when we have animals becoming much more prevalent in the geologic record, that we have oxygen levels approaching modern life levels. And so really this paper looks at the genesis of life on Earth. And so I'm wondering if you could explain just how these oxygen isotopes created life as we know it. Yeah, so at the beginning of life... uh, all we have is sort of the last universal common ancestor that we all uh, sprung from. But that environment where life first evolved would have been an anoxic atmosphere. So basically very little free oxygen in the atmosphere. It's much more likely Earth's earliest microbes uh, lived on other things uh, and didn't perform oxygenic photosynthesis. And so in terms of what isotopic values we would measure uh, if we were able to take a sample from that early atmosphere, uh, it wouldn't actually have much of any signal like we discovered in our uh, 1.5 billion year old samples. So it's only until we get appreciable oxygen in the atmosphere around two and a half billion years ago that we can actually start to measure these uh, interesting oxygen isotope signatures that we found. Okay, so every academic that publishes hopes that their piece will have an impact. And so what do you think the impact of your particular piece could have on either the academic or the real world? Sure. Um, In terms of the academic world, I think that studying the early history of the Earth uh, is still a smaller corner of science than a lot of other large fields. And the hope is that if you generate excitement and perhaps bring a bit more clarity to what the Earth was like, that it attracts more researchers and future research questions uh, based on these results. In terms of uh, the real world or application to the broader public, I think that as we're investing so much public money into explorations for exoplanets, and the hope is that at some point we find one with life on it, Uh, This sort of work helps better inform what kind of uh, planet that might be. So in the case of the Earth, for the majority of Earth history, the planet was dominated by microorganisms. And so as we look out into the stars, perhaps it's more likely when we find life on another planet that it'll be uh, microbial. And so the Earth is really the only chance we have to really take an in-depth look at what that type of environment might look like. Okay, so my last question asked you what you believe the impacts of this particular piece could be and now I want to flip that and ask you who impacted you for the development of this particular piece? Uh, Well this work comes on the backs of 
a lot of hard work that's been done in terms of understanding atmospheric chemistry, uh, constraining the ages of different samples in the sedimentary record, and also constraining parameters in the ancient atmosphere like CO2 levels and atmospheric oxygen levels. And so without those um, pieces of the puzzle, it would have been impossible to produce a picture uh, like we were able to in this paper. In terms of specific individuals, uh, I've been fortunate in my career so far to have excellent uh, mentors uh, who've helped to guide in terms of how to ask the right questions and uh, do a good job of obtaining answers. That would be my PhD advisors, Boswell Wing and Galen Halverson, as well as other career mentors like Paul Hoffman, who's sort of the uh, main figure in terms of the snowball earth hypothesis. So you published this particular paper in the journal Nature, which is, of course, an extremely high-impact paper. So what was the publishing process like? Did you come across any difficulties, or was it quite smooth? Uh, it was uh, fairly long, but uh, and obviously it's uh, initially when people are criticizing your work with through the review process, it's never the most enjoyable feeling, but... Uh, overall, I think that the quality of reviewers that helped us uh, produce the piece we did was fantastic with great constructive criticism. And uh, overall, I mean, it was, uh, uh, I think, a very productive process. Okay, so we know that you're split between two institutes, them being Princeton and the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. But What's like life being split between two different institutions into completely different parts of the world? Uh, so it comes with some benefits, for example, an endless summer as it's very sunny in Israel. And then I can just fly over to America when uh, the snow melts, which is great. Uh, it's also uh, very um advantageous to have multiple advisors that can help provide feedback and, and discussions with. Uh, however, obviously, it's a little bit challenging dealing with visas and being uprooted every uh, few months or so to go, whether it's measure samples in the lab or, or do some modeling work on this side of the world. So uh, trying to focus on all the advantages of it. Okay, and for those of our listeners who may not currently be situated within academia. I would just like to ask you how you spend your time each week. Yeah, so uh, at the moment, uh, the vast majority of my day is just spent at the computer, writing papers, reading papers, uh, having discussions with colleagues over coffee, um, uh that sort of governs my time at the moment. Uh, during my PhD, however, and at uh, times when I'm doing laboratory work, uh, it's almost exclusively in the lab, um, just generating data, preparing samples, uh, troubleshooting equipment to get the best results we can. Okay, so reading for your paper, it seemed to me that this was huge, you know, finding that 13th isotope. But I'm just wondering, what do you believe is the biggest piece of research that's been undertaken is right now? Or if I rephrase the question, what's hot in your field? Yeah, so I would say some of the biggest debates uh, in 
people that study really deep earth history are questions around exactly uh, how high oxygen has been throughout its hist- uh, throughout earth history um, this question of does biology drive the environment or does environmental conditions drive what kind of biology evolves and that's sort of central to a lot of scientific debate at the moment but I think really a lot of the uh, new invigorated interest in earth history is really being brought upon by uh, exoplanet discoveries. I think as people are sort of expanding their minds about what's possible on a terrestrial planet, uh, people are getting more curious about earth history where we actually have a real example of what seems like a completely alien landscape. Okay, so as we're coming to the end of this particular episode of Researcher Radio, I would like to ask you if you have any tips that you've used to increase your own research outputs? Um, I guess I would say is uh, just to reach out and talk to as many people as possible. I think that uh, many of the common mistakes people make in uh, research, whether it's how to find the right papers to read or um, what kind of tools to use, what kind of... uh, how to conduct field work, all these things. People have been through these problems again and again and again, and it saves so much time when you just take the time to go and have a conversation with someone who's already been through these challenges. Okay, and finally, I would like to ask you for your one piece of advice for anyone that's just about to undertake a PhD or begin their career in academia. Uh, I would say, again, surround yourself with the right people, Um, even if this means looking outside of your research group, if that's not possible, and absolutely try to start multiple projects, because some days you can't just write at your desk all day and you need to do some lab work, and it provides you that sort of flexibility, as well as you can't always pick what projects are going to be successes from the get-go. So that would be my advice. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, so that's all we've got time for today on Research Radio. I've been your host, Joe Fenton, and today I've been joined by Dr. Peter Crockford from Princeton University. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And thank you for listening, everyone. Until next time. listening to the researcher podcast you can follow us on twitter instagram facebook or linkedin you can also follow us online at www.researcher-app.com or alternatively you can drop me an email at joseph.fenton at researcherapp.com researcher is free to use on ios android or on your web browser and if you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to leave us a review